Well, hey guys, we are really, really excited that you're here because you want to build a great marriage. I mean, nobody gives up Friday night, Saturday, is that the Lord? Do we? <laughs> nobody gives up a Friday night and a Saturday morning unless they're really committed to building a great marriage, and, and uh, that's a passion of ours, and you'll get to hear a lot of our uh, story tonight and tomorrow, and and uh, we're just excited about what God is going to do in your life as we go through this. You know, as, as we were sitting there and just waiting to begin, I was reminded of something that I read this year. I One of my devotional practices is reading through the one-year Bible. Anybody read through the one-year Bible? handful of people. And uh, I love reading through the one-year Bible. I mean, it's every year I read the same stories, and God just really speaks in a unique way. And and uh, this, a couple, I guess it was last week, in the one-year Bible, we just read through the story of Moses, and Moses going to Egypt to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And I'm just reminded of when Moses encounters God again in that burning bush, and God begins to explain to Moses I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to set the Jewish people free. And Moses' response is like, what are you talking about? I mean, I, I cannot do that. There's no way. Can somebody else go? I mean, he's just, he's just overwhelmed by that idea. And, and he asks God the question. He says, well, if I go and they ask me who sent you, what should I say? And, and, of course, God says, you tell them that I am, Yahweh sent you, which means that God is what we need in the moment, right? That's what that's about. And, and then he says, well, what if they don't believe me? What do I say? And he, and he asked him this question, and I was just thinking about our time tonight and our time tomorrow morning and then Sunday. He said to Moses, he says, what's that in your hand? And what was in his hand was a shepherd's staff. And I was just thinking about how that staff represented what God had been doing in the last 40 years of his life. And how there was such power in his story. And how the power of what God had done in his life was the very thing that was going to unlock the freedom of the Jewish people. Because what God had done in that 40 years is the very thing that God was going to use to allow Moses to lead them out of captivity and into the promised land. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about our time together this weekend, that's what Tina and I hope will happen this weekend. Is that as we share our story of what God has done in our life, that the, the power in that story would help you really step into the promised land, to step into everything that God has for us in marriage. And uh, so this is my beautiful wife, Tina. Hey, and, everybody. Uh, <laughs> Tina and I have been married for 20 years. And uh, so we got married in December of 1996. So just past our 20-year anniversary. It's hard to believe. It seems like yesterday, 20 years. And uh, often I tell people we've been Married 20 years, and it's been the, the best 10 years of my life. It's been awesome, awesome. And uh, you'll hear more about that tonight. A couple just housekeeping things. Um, there's a resource table in the coffee area. 
So what I did is I just brought a handful of my favorite books on marriage. And uh, one of the things that uh, we'll encourage you to do as we go through our time together is to continually be investing in your marriage. You know, you have to build your marriage. We can't build it for you. A conference won't make it all better. Uh, A conference is intended to inspire you and to give you some tools, but you have to build it. And those books give you some tools that will help you to build a great marriage. And And I just hope that that's your expectation. I hope that you won't ever allow anyone or your circumstances or your family or your feelings or the current state of your marriage, I hope you won't allow anything or anyone to ever allow you to settle for anything less than a great marriage. That should be our goal. I mean, that should be our our pursuit. And I, I just believe everybody can have it. Everybody can have it. That is a very reasonable expectation. But anyway, I put those books there just so that if you'd like to know what are a couple of books that we could be reading They're there. Now, this is so important. I didn't, like, buy these books to bring them. They're actually my books that I've marked all in. So I really want to take them all home with me. So those are not gifts. They're just books for you to be able to look through. And if there's one you really like, you know, take a picture of it so that you've got the name and the author so you can uh, get online and order your copy. And, And those are some of the books that have really, really helped us. Also, when you came in today, You should have gotten an index card. Everybody hold up their index card. You have an index card? Okay, so we need someone towards the back. There's index cards on the table. If you don't have an index card, if you'll raise your hand, these guys will bring you an index card. And here's the purpose of the index card. We're going to cover, you know, we've got material that we're going to cover, but there's no way we can cover every question that every person comes to a an event like this with. So the whole idea of the index card is don't write your name on it, but write your question. In fact, there are some questions you're not willing to ask if your name is attached to it, right? And uh, so write your question on that index card. About halfway through tonight, we'll take a five-minute stretch bathroom break. During that break, you can they're going to put up some kind of basket, bucket, something on the little table back there. And you can just drop it in there, and after each session, we'll try, to do, we'll try to go through as many of those questions. If it's a question I know we're already going to answer, we'll skip it. But all the questions that we're not really dealing with, we'll try to get through as many of those questions as, you, as you, we can. Because at the end of the day, if you come to a conference and we don't speak to the thing that you're wrestling with right now, then we, we don't want you to leave feeling like, well, you know, that didn't help me. So we want to make sure that we do all that we can to address everything that we can. Well, Tina and I, I told you, have been married 20 years. Uh, we have three kids. Uh, we have a son, Luke, who's 15. I think we got a picture. Do we have a picture? We didn't get a picture? Okay, maybe we can find it and show it tomorrow because it was supposed to be sent. If it wasn't sent, I'll get it sent so I can brag on my family a little bit tomorrow. But I've got a 15-year-old son. His name is Luke, and uh, he's just passed me. He's about 6'2", and he loves telling me about that. And, and uh, then I have uh, my middle daughter is 14. Her name is Abigail. And then we have a little one. Her name is Isabel. Well, I say she's not real little anymore. She's nine, so she's about this big. And uh, her name is Isabella. And uh, 
we are blessed with three great ch- children and, and uh, just love, love being parents, love being married now. It was hard early. We'll tell, tell you a lot about that tonight and tomorrow, but uh, it's been a great journey. You want to say anything about any of that that I haven't talked about? You're putting me on the spot. Um, no, I'll, I'll talk later. So we, we both grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina. How many have been to Wilmington before? That's our hometown. And uh, we were actually in second grade together, became boyfriend and girlfriend, got married. No, just kidding. We were in second grade together. And in my last church, there was a couple who became boyfriend and girlfriend, became sweethearts in third grade. And they had been married 73 years when I was their pastor. Just think about that. That's old, (laughs) right? That's crazy. And uh, very happily married. But we, we didn't... Well, we were in second grade. I don't really remember her. She says she remember me. That- I remember him because he was in trouble all the time. So I wouldn't have, I was too good for him in second grade. I was, I was an angel. <laughs> so we, we started dating in college. We both went to UNCW, and uh, we met in a student ministry, or we kind of reunited in a student ministry, started dating not long after that, dated about five years, and got married, and and then in 2000, we moved to Greensboro. So we came to Greensboro October of 2000. We've been there 16 years. And uh, we love pastoring Daystar. Daystar is a church like yours. It was, when we got there, it was just very, very small. But uh, over the years, God began helping us trying to figure out how do we reach uh, this culture? How do we reach the next generation and kind of reshape our church and ministry? And, and over the last few years, we've got to see a lot of people come to Christ and and we've got to see a lot of marriages transformed as we've shared our, our story and, and talked a lot about, about marriage. I thought of something I can say. Okay. Stuff will just come to me. You know, Alan and I had a really rocky start, and I just felt like I wanted to say this at the beginning. It's always been hard for me to think, oh, here we are, he's a pastor, and we had such a rocky start. And I'm like, God, why did it have to be this way? And we... Our, our story at our church is a big joke. I mean, we just laugh about it and everything now. But I feel like just through the years, you know, of course, I kind of wish it could, could have been different. But then I just thank God because he has used it so much. He's used it greatly in our lives to shape me into who I am and just to do a miracle in our marriage, and he's used it to be able to minister to other couples. And so I think I always have to keep in my mind, and just to let you know this, if you are in a bad place, you know, it's not how you begin, it's how you finish. And um, so I'm just grateful for how God has has used it. We are really excited to be here, because we're excited anytime we can get away from our children. Um. We want to recognize some couples, the first thing that we're going to do. Uh, the, the first thing I wanted to say, if, if you are here and you're single, and just praise the Lord that you're here and you're single and you want to come and learn what marriage is about before you even begin the journey to get married, that's great. But the first uh, couples that we wanted to recognize are, um, do we have any engaged couples in here? If you'll raise your, raise your hand. One. Just one? Awesome. Bless your heart. (laughs) 
Then we want to recognize the newly married couple. So I think this is how we'll do it. Um, if you have been married, we'll just say five years or less if you'll stand up. Five years or less. Awesome. And, and then, yeah, yeah. Okay, stay standing. Okay, if you've been married four years or less, stay standing. Okay, three years or less, stay standing. Okay, then two, two years. Okay, a year or less, stay standing. Oh, wow. Okay, what do I go So when, when were you, when were y'all married? July 9th. Seven months. Seven months, when were y'all married? June 12th, so July, this is our most recently Well, married. no, right here. What? Okay, okay. So right Congratulations. here. Oh, there's somebody else. Oh, I can't see you because oh. of the lights. What's your date? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry. You were so close. Hey, did we get a, did we get a gift cards? Okay, we will have a gift card for you somewhere tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning. So make sure you get that. Okay, then next we are going to do the more experienced couples. That's what we're going to call it. So I want you to stand if you have been married, I think we said 10, 20 years or more. Please stand. That's great. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Keep standing if you've been married 30 years or longer. <laughs> okay. 40 years. 40 years? 40 years or longer. Okay. Showdown. 50 years or longer. Wow. Is that it? Okay. How long? How long have you been married? 51 wow. years. Isn't that awesome? Congratulations. I think y'all need to come up here and teach. Yeah. So, I'll, again, tomorrow I'm going to have a gift card for you. So, <laughs> find me tomorrow. It'll be, you'll be glad you did. I lost my dad two years ago, but this past December my parents would have been married 55 years. So, um. So, we want to first start about why are you here? Why have you decided to take Friday night and Saturday morning to come here and listen to us talk? Um, some of you just want to start well, and I think that's great. Alan and I, our premarital counseling was the worst premarital counseling. I will not even go into what they told us. It was just awful and immoral. It was really Shameful. It really it was is. a pastor in our church. So, hats off to you that you're coming here to start well. I wish that Alan and I would have had people that would have come in and shared this with us. Um, some of you are here because you just probably need a tune-up on your marriage. Um, all of us, every once in a while, just like we have to take our cars in for a tune-up, we just need a tune-up. We just need some new thoughts, maybe some new ideas, something that will get us excited, a new teaching about our marriage, and that's great. And there's some of you here 
that might be in trouble and might be really struggling in your marriage. And I just want to encourage you, and I'm going to share more of our story, that I was so desperate, y'all, in our marriage. I mean, I felt hopeless, and I thought I was going to die. And um, our story is very funny now, but when we were in it, it was not funny at all. And uh, But I just want to encourage you tonight that with God, all things are possible, and God can do a miracle in your marriage. Don't give up. That's what I want to encourage you. Uh, this conference is for people who are married, people who want to be married, and those that are sorry they ever got married. <laughs> but there's always hope. So, our, you know, our goal, again, is to create hope by telling our story and sharing some of the things that we've learned that have helped us to really strengthen our marriage. So to give you hope and to give you some tools. But again, we can't fix your marriage for you. And the reason I say that, it might, maybe that seems like a ridiculous thing to say, but so many times couples will come into my office and they're having marriage issues and they want the pastor to help them. Really what they want the pastor to do is to fix them, you know, or, or worse, for the pastor to fix their spouse. You know, if, if the pastor would just fix my wife and everything would be great, or he just fix my husband everything would be great. And the truth is, we cannot fix your marriage. Uh, only you can do that. But what, what we can do is we can give you hope, the faith to believe that God can fix your marriage. And then secondly, we can give you some tools that will get you going in a good direction. But marriage, like every other relationship, it is something you have to build. We have to build our relationship with the Lord. It doesn't just happen because we wake up in the morning. We have to build our relationship with our kids. It doesn't happen because we wake them up in the morning, right? We have to build our relationship with our spouse. It, it doesn't happen accidentally. It happens intentionally as we work at it and invest in it. You know, sometimes you hear, you know, couples sometimes that they're in a bad place and a man or a woman will get their eye on somebody else and they think the, the grass is greener on the other side. Listen, the grass is green where you water it. And at the end of the day, you've got to water your marriage. You've got to invest in your marriage. And if you do, you'll be glad you did. And you can have a fantastic marriage, but you'll have to work at it. What we want to do is to give you I heard all a, the tools we can. I heard a joke yesterday. I think it was, it was either Robert Morris or Chris Hodges said, we think the grass is greener on the other side, but actually the um, landscape is more expensive on the other side. Right, the water bill's higher. Genesis 2.18 says this, It's not good for man to be alone. God created us for relationship. God created us to be in relationship with Him. He created us to be in relationship with each other. But today, which means marriage is a gift. It's a ble- if it's not good to be alone, then marriage is a gift. Marriage is a solution to the problem of it's not good for, man, it's for to loneliness. But today in our culture, people have a pretty negative opinion of marriage, right? A lot of people have decided, I'm not getting married. Or a lot of people decide, I'm not getting married until I'm 35 so I can pick out the perfect one. And now, if you, if, you're, if you don't get married until you're 35, uh, it's not that it's bad. My point is just people are prolonging marriage longer and longer because they're afraid. They're afraid of picking the wrong one or they have a... Hard time finding a person that 
uh, believes in marriage and is willing to make a, a lifelong commitment. But the truth is, the truth is, marriage is not nearly as bad as it seems. A couple of years ago, I read a great little book. You can see it. It's on the resource table, but it's called The Good News About Marriage. And the book was, here's how the book got written. If I'm remembering correctly, she is a professor at Harvard, and she was writing a periodical about marriage, and she was quoting the statistic that all of us have heard, and I've preached before until I read this book. But she was quoting the statistic that half of all marriages end in divorce. How many of you have heard that? Half of all marriages end in divorce. Everybody, right? And so she began doing some research because she didn't want to put, she's writing academically. She didn't want to quote that. She didn't want to put that statistic in there without being able to to support it, to cite it. And uh, after she started doing some research, she realized there, there is no evidence to support that claim. Actually, what she found out is that in the 70s, uh, with the sexual revolution, there was a season where marriages, the, the, the divorce rate began to creep up. And people looking at that change, that temporary, that little small window of time, they projected, they said, if this continues by such and such a date, the divorce rate will be 50%. And from that idea, all of a sudden, everybody just started saying and throwing out there, the divorce rate is 50%. And the good news is, the divorce rate in America has never been near 50%. You want to share some of that? Actually, the divorce rate in America is only 25%. You ever heard that? Nobody's ever told you that, right? Because in America, we live on bad news. The news is the bad news, right? There's no good news. Only K-love. Positive, encouraging K-love, right? Well, there's your K-love statistic, 25%. 80% of married couples report being happily married, which is, it That's is surprising. 80. The divorce rate in the church is 25 to 50%. Better. I, I, should, I didn't finish that. Oh. We've all, listen, we've all heard in church the divorce, raise your hand if you've heard this. The divorce rate in the church is just as bad as in the world. Wrong. People that attend church are 25 to 50%, depending on which study you look at, less likely to divorce. Isn't that good news? We've never gotten any good. Somebody's finally given us some good news about marriage. That's what the book's all about. So being involved in a local church, growing spiritually, is a key to the success of your marriage. And statistically, man, that's true. And then finally, problems in marriage are not caused by big issues. Small changes make a big difference. So check that book out if you want. It might be a, it's a little tiny read. I mean, literally, it's about this big and it's about this thin. I think it's 100 pages. You can read it in two hours. But it's very, very, very Encouraging. Now, some of you might say, well, Alan, you don't understand who I'm married to, right? Those statistics sound fantastic for most people, but I'm not married to most people. Well, let me, we want to talk about two big myths, two big myths that people have a tendency to believe when it comes to marriage. Here's the first one, that the secret to a great marriage is pif- picking the perfect spouse. 
The secret to having a great marriage is picking the perfect spouse. Listen, there are no perfect spouses. And all the married people said, amen, right? Everybody thinks they found the perfect one and then they get married. And they find out that that person is not perfect. There's only been one perfect person. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it goes on to say that He gave Himself for the church. You know what that implies? That the church is imperfect. If the church was perfect, Jesus wouldn't have to come, right? Jesus came for an imperfect church. And the metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to describe our relationship with Him is that of a marriage. And in Ephesians 5.25, Paul is talking about marriage, but he gets to the end of the chapter and he says, listen, I'm not just talking about marriage, I'm talking about this mysterious relationship between Christ and the church. So the point is, in Paul's passage, Paul's passage assumes that the church is imperfect and... Your spouse is imperfect. If Tina was perfect, I don't have to lay down my life for Tina. But because she's imperfect, I have to give my life to her so that one day I can be partly responsible for presenting her to God spotless, perfect, without wrinkle. You know, he says that in that passage. So the whole implication of that passage is... Your spouse is not perfect. And that was, that was certainly our story. I heard somebody say this one time before I start into our story, where you'll he- hear people say they get, you know, anxiety, but, but I need to find the one, that one perfect person out there for me. And I think I heard somebody say one time, the minute you say I do, they are the one. They're the one for you. They're the one that God has for you. Well, We met in um, our first year of college, and I grew up very protected, and I grew up in a Christian home and really did not date um, many, hardly anybody. And my first year in college, I came to my mother and said, Mom, I really feel like that I would like to meet somebody and start dating. And so we prayed, and then here came Alan. And I always knew Alan through the years, but it was not until our first year that we started to hang out. We, I saw him, I remember the first time I saw him was at um, BSU, it was Baptist Student Union at UNCW, and I saw him from across the room, and I just thought, you know, what a stud. (laughs) You know, my stomach turned, I was having butterflies, I just thought to myself. I got to record this (laughs) If only I could have him, I would just be the happiest girl in the world. But I just love, what I loved about him is that he was very strong. I felt, I felt secure when I was with him. I love the fact that he, he knew where he was going in life. And um, at, at that point, we just started to hang out and, and we began dating. And, of course, when I saw Tina, I'm thinking, here's this beautiful girl who loves Jesus, who's lived this really very sheltered 
life. I mean, she's been, she has these great parents that love Jesus, that raised her to, you know, in church and to love the, in fact, when, when Tina and I started t- dating, it was like a, a two-for-one deal for me. I got Tina, and I got her parents. It was awesome. And uh, I hung out at her house. When we started dating, I mean, almost every night of the week, I ate dinner with her family, and, and they were, it was such a life-giving environment for me. But she was this beautiful girl that loved uh, Jesus, that had been so guarded and protected. And every time I looked at Tina, she smiled. I'm that simple. I, I can still see now. I mean, every time I would look over her, she would just smile, and it just—I mean, it just—it did something for me. And uh, so I started chasing her, chasing her down, and and our first date well, was interesting. Well, actually, the truth is that I kind of chased him down a little bit, and I, I guess you could say I was just kind of ready, and I knew that he loved the Lord, so I did kind of chase him down. He was um, not in a bad way, but he was had been in a relationship, and so we were just uh, friends at first. And what he said a minute ago, it is funny, my mom and I will joke, I think at times my mom liked him better than I did. And lots of times at night, I would go to bed and Alan and my mom would stay up praying and, and singing together and watching preachers on television. And I was like, y'all It was are- a little weird. <laughs> we were having revival. <laughs> All the backslidden people went on to bed. We were... We were serious about Jesus. I needed my rest. <laughs> so anyways, I kind of chased him. And at one point, he had told me one night that he just did not feel like he wanted to start dating seriously. And he just just broke my heart, y'all. It was, it was really bad. It was sad. But then in the same breath, he said well, why don't you go out with me this Friday night? I mean, it was just weird. It was like, you know. He I was, was schizophrenic. Or, or he was just kind of acting like a woman. Syndrome. He didn't know what he wanted. Oh, that hurt. So we went on our first date, and we went to this restaurant in Wilmington called Philly Deli. And J. Um, Michael, anybody been to J. Michael's Philly Deli? Oh, one person. It's awesome. Get extra cheese. Anyway, you need to go there. If you ever go to Wilmington, it's awesome. As long as I had grown up in Wilmington, I had never been to J. Michael's Philly Deli, so he opened my eyes to a great uh, Philly cheesesteak, even though now I, I don't eat dairy or gluten. But anyways, that's another story. Um, but we went to J. Michael's, and you know how girls, when we start going out with a guy at first and you go out to eat, you know, you want him to think that you eat like a bird. Well, you know, you, know, you just have to eat little pieces. You don't want them to see you do your mouth funny or, you know, eat like a pig, you know. And so he ordered a large Philly cheesesteak for us to split, and he got extra cheese on it. And when you eat the sandwich, I mean, I had cheese all over my face, all over my hands. It was awesome. Love at first sight. It was awesome. It was unbelievable. So what was strange, I guess, about that night is that through the night, he would just make comments about us being married, and, you know, I am just like, what in the world is going on in his head? And so by the end of the night, we had decided, I think God had just changed his heart, and we had decided at the end of the night that we were going to start to to date one another seriously. My, my hang-up was, and I told Tina this a couple of months before this moment, I knew if we started dating, 
that, I mean, I knew she was perfect. I mean, that would just be kind of the end of it. And I just wasn't, I wasn't sure with, I was working at the time, working three jobs. I was going through, trying to pay my way through college. And uh, I just didn't think that that was a, a wise decision. But when I saw that cheese all over her face, I mean, there was just no stopping me, you know. So we dated, we dated about five years, and uh, then we got married, and I was, I mean, it was, I had been trying to talk her into marriage for about three years, and uh, because I was independent, you know, I was out of the house and living on my own, and I figured, man, I could, it'd be great to have a roommate, and, uh, and uh, so. Someone that would cook for you. And take your clothes off, I mean, just saying, I mean, that was great, and uh so we were hanging on, and I was looking forward to getting married, and the day finally came. You know, we were getting married. I was so excited. Well, <laughs> how long do y'all have? Um, I'm going to try to condense this. Alan and I had a lot of issues, and we dated for five years, and we're going to talk about some of our issues in a minute. So, you know... We all bring issues into marriage. We all bring issues into our dating relationship. So we just had some big struggles. And we actually, we got engaged. And um, I don't even know how long we were engaged. I actually, I knew that there were issues. And I actually gave the ring back to Alan. It broke my mom's heart. I told my mom that she, maybe she should go and marry him. <laughs> actually, her mom and I kept dating the whole time. Really? I talked to her almost every day. It was awesome. This sounds so bad. It's, it's really funny now. Um, so I gave him the ring back, and we actually stayed apart for seven months. But I think I feel like I had to do that because I just had so many questions. So we got back together, and, you know, I loved Alan, but I just, I, I just had so many issues. I grew up in such a sheltered home. When we got married, I flew for the first time. I mean, I left Wilmington for the first time. I left my mama for the first time. I probably had a little bit of an unhealthy attachment to my mom and to my family. I mean, I just did everything for the first time. I was working full-time for the first time. He was in seminary, you know, going into the ministry, and then I was having sex for the first time. Don't even get me started on that. We'll talk, talk about that in the morning. Um, so, you know, it was, it was a big change for me in one day. And I think the day of our wedding, um, you know, I've wondered all along, God, I've even questioned, God, was I supposed to marry him? And, um, you know, I really believe through the years that God handpicked me for Alan, and I really believe that God handpicked Alan for me. And like I said at the beginning, it has been the greatest catalyst for, for both of us to grow in the Lord, and God has greatly used it in ministry. And never in a million years would have ever thought that we would come here and share our story and share with other people. And... Um, so the day that we got married, though, I knew we left at the, the whole day. I mean, it's terrible to say, but the whole day I just, in the back of my mind, I was like, what am I doing? Am I doing the right thing? Because I think the main thing for me with Alan was that I loved Alan and I loved to be with Alan, but I always felt like with Alan that he wanted to change me, that I wasn't, um, and I'm going to 
talk about in a minute, the lie that I was living out, out of was that I was not enough. And so I think that was my fear is that I was just going to marry him. And he was very passionate and his passion kind of um, drove me crazy. So, but I married him and um, we left the um, reception and I left, I mean, literally crying my eyes out, kissing my mother kissing my family. Uh, I had two little cousins that were like this tall that I had babysat for years. I mean, they are crying because they know I'm not coming back to Wilmington. We were going to live in Raleigh. And, you know, it was just terrible. I cried the entire way to Raleigh. We drove from Wilmington to Raleigh. I remember at one point in the car, I stopped crying and I looked over at him. He goes, just go ahead and get it out. So... I just kept crying. I cried the entire way to Raleigh. I cried. We got in the hotel room. I was still crying. Um, I think I called my mom. I was crying. Um, I cried. Um, I got in the shower. I cried in the shower, and I thought to myself, dear God, what am I about to do? And I cried. It was just terrible. I, I, there's no words. It was awful, awful, awful. I thought I was going to die. I had a honeymoon suite I paid a lot of money for. That was a waste of money. It was, it was very disappointing. <laughs> we tell couples all the time getting married, say, listen, you need to lower your expectations. Because <laughs> your honeymoon night and your honeymoon, it might not be like the movies. I mean, just let's get back to reality and we figure if we lower their expectations, they'll have a great time. But we went in with high expectations, and it was a disaster. It was a disaster. So she cried herself to sleep. We got up in the morning at 5 o'clock, got on the plane, and headed to Cancun. And uh, we were going to be there for a week. Of course, that was the first time she had flown, first time she had left the country, first time she had slept outside of her mama's house unless it was at her best friend's house. And we walked into this honeymoon suite at an all-inclusive all resort, uh, you know, overlooking some beautiful water. I don't know what it was. And, uh, I mean, I'm just like, overwhelmed. look at this. Isn't this incredible? And she walks in, and she, here she goes again. She's just sobbing hysterically. And I, I walked over to the balcony. We are like the fifth floor. And I'm just, I'm just weighing my options, you know. It's like... <laughs> Do I just jump, you know, go to heaven now? I mean, what's, how do I get out of this? And I was probably thinking you should probably just jump. <laughs> and so she called her mom, and I'm so glad me and her mom were such good friends. <laughs> you know, because her mom just said, you got, you're married now, and you got to grow up, and you, you can't, you can't, <laughs> sorry. That's what you get right there. That's you know, she didn't say, it would have been easy for her to say, well, well, come home, honey, you know, if you're, you know, and it would have been over. I mean, if her mother would have opened the door right there, it would have been over. And uh, so when you have kids, remember that, you know, once they get married, you got to let them work through that stuff. And, and uh, so our honeymoon was, it was challenging. My, my favorite, this is how bad it was. My favorite memory from our honeymoon was every morning they had this breakfast buffet bar <laughs> with full peeled kiwi 
Like, I could eat all of them I wanted for free. I, I mean, that was like the great, that's my best memory from my honeymoon. Isn't that bad? It was rough. And I will have to say that my best memory was actually during our honeymoon, I started my period. <laughs> and that was my best memory. <laughs> I'm not sure that changed anything, but I, I'm glad you worked through that. But let me tell you, our church just got us a trip for 15 years to Cabo. Yeah, 15 years. For 15 right. years at our church. And uh, we just went and we, we redid our honeymoon. It was, it was it wonderful. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was great. No crying. It was awesome. So, you know, then we, after we got married and we got back from our week-long torture trip, we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina, where I was in seminary. And uh, all that was, I mean, for me, that was like dream come true. I had already been at the seminary for the first semester. We got married in December. Then Tina moved up, and we were there for the next semester. And it's like all of a sudden, I was surrounded by all these people that loved Jesus and wanted to talk about theology and tell other people about Jesus. Three times a week, they brought in the best preachers from all over America, and I got to hear these guys and meet them and... I got to sit in class every day and learn about the Bible. I mean, it was like the greatest thing in the world. It was like being a, you ever been on a missions trip or a youth camp? It was like I was there permanently. I mean, it was just like awesome. And Tina, on the other hand, uh, things were a little different for her. It's like she was about to die. Yes, I was dying. When we got back to, um, I was about to say, we had our week of torture, and then we came back to Raleigh for the next uh many years of torture, but we got back to Raleigh, and like he said, he was in school. I started working full-time in retail, and I was not working with any believers. They were all lost, and I would come to work every day um, at the mall in retail, and I would just be crying some more, and and they didn't know what to tell me. You know, they would just, you know, you're going to be all right, and and I, re- I mean, I remember there was one night, I remember this night in particular, and we went, we were at church, and we started talking to this couple that had been married a while, and I just remember looking in her eyes. I was just so lonely, and so I just felt so alone. I had no friends, and I think at seminary, I felt a lot of um, religion around me, and I didn't feel like I had people that I could just go to. You know, when you're hurting, you need somebody that you can go to and say, listen, I'm hurting. I need somebody to pray for me. I am, I am desperate. I feel hopeless. And you don't need somebody just to tell you to just get over it and, and do what you got to do. And so I, I needed some people there for me, and I did not have that I barely saw Alan. Lots of times he worked retail too. We would pass each other. So I would be at the seminary by myself at night. And um, that just was a very difficult for me. So after a few months of that, I came home. I, I don't know exactly the date, probably in April as the semester was winding down. And, and I knew Tina was having a hard time. I just didn't know how difficult a time she was having. So like she said, she'd be at work all day, I'd be in class. And then we both worked at Crabtree Valley Mall, which is a big mall in Raleigh. And, and uh, literally we would pass each other on the road. She'd be coming home, I'd be going to work. I worked from 5 to 9, so I'd get home about 10. 
So we, we'd see each other maybe a few minutes in the morning before I left for class. My classes started at 7.30. So we'd see each other a few minutes in the morning. Then we'd see each other a few minutes at night. And we wouldn't see each other on weekends because weekends when you work retail, I mean, you're at work on the weekends. And we just never saw each other. And so I knew she was having a hard time. I didn't know how hard a time because I wasn't there to know. And uh, one day I came home and she's just hysterical in tears again. And and we began to talk, and as we talked, she just, she just told me, she said, I don't love you, and I don't, I don't think I want to be married, and I will never be in the ministry, and I'm going back home. And uh, that, was a, that was a hard moment, right? I mean, because in my mind, everything that mattered to me was slipping through my hands. So I had, you know, before I ever met Tina, I was, had surrendered to a call in the ministry. That had been my dream for years and years. Everybody knew it. That's what I was working towards. Now my wife's saying she'll never be in the ministry. And, uh, and I got married, and I grew up in a broken home. My mother's been married three times and, and uh, is single today. And, and it was, there was a lot of ugly, painful things because of that. And so when I got married, it was for life. I, I would have lived my whole life miserable before I would have walked out on my marriage. I mean, it, because, of, because of my own experience and not wanting to go through that or not wanting to put kids through that. Or, and uh, so, I mean, it's like now all of a sudden, I have no control over this. She doesn't want to be married. I can't make her be married to him. I can't make her stay. I can't make her love me. I can't make her want to be in the ministry. And the truth is, in that moment, those are the only two things that matter. My marriage and my ministry, and I felt like I was losing them both. But God began to really do an incredible work in that moment. And one of the things that we'll talk about a couple of times as we uh, go through this time together is that God works in our crisis to develop our character and to prepare us for the future. And when you look at the Bible, all the men and women that we admire and that we study and that we get inspired by, without exception, they went through moments in their life where it seemed like everything has been lost. But it's in those moments that God is actually preparing them for what He has prepared for them. It's like when we talk about Moses... Moses, just think about this now. Moses grows up in the home of Pharaoh, which means he's educated, means he's powerful, means he's, he's very influential. It probably means he's very wealthy and, and, and really prideful. And then after killing the Egyptian and fleeing into the wilderness as a fugitive for 40 years, and you think about that, 40 years in his mind, his life's over. The dream of having a positive impact on his people. The dream is dead. God has forgotten him. I mean, just think about four. You know, our marriage, the first five years of our marriage, it was hard. Moses, it was 40 years. 40 years. Joseph, I believe, if I remember correctly, it was 14 years as a slave and prisoner. David, it was 22 years from the time he was anointed king until he actually reigned as king. 22 years. But in those moments, God is not wasting time. 
And you might be in a season in your marriage right now where it feels hopeless. Where it's just really hard. Where you're not sure y'all can make it. Where you think your my spouse has problems, right? You might be in that season. And the thing you've got to do is to open your heart. At the end of the day, when we got in that situation, what I knew is that I couldn't fix Tina. I had problems, and Tina had problems. But I couldn't waste one moment of time trying to fix my wife, because that wasn't going to help me. In fact, like she said earlier, our problem was, one of our biggest problems was, she thought I was trying to fix her. And at that point in her life, she didn't think anything needed to be fixed. And so trying to convince her something needed to be fixed and then fix it, do you think that was going to draw us together or push us apart? It's going to push us apart, right? So I under, I under, by God's grace, I understood that she was in such a desperate place. She was angry, she was alone, and she was hurting. And the last thing she needed me to do is to say, well, I've got the solution. Let me tell you how to fix your problems. But instead, what I had to do is say, God, I need you to fix me. And again, by God's grace, I was able to say, Lord, no matter what Tina does or does not do, whether Tina ever loves me, whether Tina decides to stay married or not, whether Tina decides to be in the ministry or not, one day I'm going to stand before you and I'm going to answer for whether or not I love my wife like you love me. Did I love my wife like Christ loves the church? And I just made a decision. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to die to myself in order to be the best husband I can be. Because at the end of the day, I don't have to answer for her response. She does. That's between her and the Lord. What I'm going to answer for is whether I embraced the call of God on my life, which was to, to die. And just like Jesus says over and over again, unless a kernel falls in the ground and dies, it doesn't produce any fruit. And the truth is, God works in our circumstances for all of us to bring us to a place of death and surrender and brokenness so that he can actually do something great. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, one of the things that's really challenging about our culture is most of us grew up, and our parents have told us, and this is, this is just getting worse and worse, but most of us grew up, and our parents have told us our whole life that we're a little angel. The truth is, we're closer to the devil. But our mama says we're a little angel, and and we don't think we have problems. We think everybody else has problems. And our pride actually hinders the work of God. And when I look back, I'm so grateful for the crisis. Because the crisis is what broke through my pride, my independence, my self-sufficiency, my drivenness. My, pride, my uh, crisis is what broke through all of that. So God could begin doing a deeper work in my heart. So our crisis saved my life. This is why Romans 8.28 says, God works in all things 
for the good of those who love him and are called according to our purpose. His purpose, and in verse 29 he says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God is working all of your circumstances to make you like Jesus. Not to make you happy all the time, not to feel good all the time, but to make you like Jesus. Why? Because when the more like Jesus you become, the more real happiness and joy you discover. See, that's not in your circumstances. That's not in getting your spouse to behave. It's in you walking with God. In fact, psychology has proven this, right? The high state of existence, the transcendent, the place we all want to live is now we're giving our life away to make a difference in the lives of other people. And the truth is the only way we get there is through that crisis. So we're in a mess, but that mess actually saved our life. So the situation that you're in, right now it's hard. Right now you wonder, can we make it? And I'm just telling you, this is the greatest moment of your life. 20 years ago, actually it was just about right now. I mean, almost exactly 20 years ago. It was the hardest moment, the darkest moment, the most confusing moment, the most uncertain moment, the scariest moment. The greatest moment of my life. Because that moment changed everything. In fact, today, everything in my life that anybody would look at and be envious of. So if somebody would look at me and say, man, you have a great marriage. I w- I'd love to have a marriage like that. Or if they'd look at me and say, gosh, you, your kids and your family and y'all's relationships. It's just, man, I, I hope to have a, a family like that. Or anything else in my life that you would point to and you could say, that's good I'd like for that to be true in my life. Anything that's good flows out of this moment that started 20 years ago. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself. You know what's good about that? We can make a choice to do that. God doesn't have to do it for us. We can choose to humble ourselves. Now, if you're hard-headed like me, God will do it for you. But you can humble yourself. And he says, and God, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you in due time. God wants to bless you. But first he has to break you. Paul says, in my weakness, his strength is perfected. Now the context, we've all heard that. But the context is, because of the surpassing great revelations that I received from God. I was so spiritual and full of myself, is what Paul is saying. There was given to me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And I asked the Lord three times, God, would you take it away? And every time God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Listen, no matter what you're going through, no matter where your marriage is, God's Grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient. And so then he says, therefore, I will boast in my weakness. That's why we can tell this story. Is today we can boast in our weakness. Why? Because God's strength was perfected in our weakness. And if you leave here understanding that one thing, God will change your life. So when God did this, I wish I could say, you know what? I was so spiritual 
And I was so in love with Jesus that I began to pray and just said, Lord, I'm going to trust you. No, the truth is, I was so desperate and I was scared to death. I think when I look back, I grew up very, very independent. So my dad left when I was five. My mother spent all of, all of my growing up years working like a crazy person, putting herself through school, trying to make a way for my sister and I. And she did, considering what she was under, she did an unbelievable, amazing job. However, because she was doing that, because of the hand she was dealt, I grew up by myself. So as early as I could remember, I did anything I wanted, when I wanted. I was just completely independent. I just, I just grew up by myself. By fifth grade, I was working. I've never stopped working. I mean, I just grew up by myself, making it happen. And I, what the enemy did was the enemy interpreted my circumstances by saying to me, you're all alone, and it's up to you. You're all alone, it's up to you. You know what that does? It turns you into a religious, prideful, independent driven, ugly person nobody wants to be around. Which makes for a terrible husband, terrible father, and an an abusive pastor. So what God was doing in this terrible moment is He was saving my life. God was saving my life. God was changing my heart so that I would be a decent husband and father. And pastor. But that had to begin in here. It wasn't something I could, it wasn't just another job that I could do. It's what God had to do, right? And so we're in a, it was a, it was a terrible dark moment. But God used that moment to birth this beautiful, beautiful thing. I, I, I learned, I learned how to pray when that happened. I'd get up in the mornings. How many of you seen the movie? Uh, War Room. You should go see that movie. Well, that was my, my that was part of my story. I'd get up in the mornings, and I'm just crying out to God. God, you got to help me, and you got to save my marriage, and you got to do a, you got to change me, and you got to change her, and and I, it's it's I just was, it's like I was just a drowning person, desperately, desperately reaching out for God. And listen, when you seek Him. You will find Him when you seek with all your heart. And in American culture, the truth is, we have it so good and so comfortable and so easy and so prosperous. It is very difficult for an American to seek God with all his heart. I was reading this week, and I think it was yesterday in Psalm 21, 27. Where David says, this one thing, this one thing I ask, and I will seek one thing. What's the one thing for you? What is it? Listen, I, if, you, if you remember one thing at this conference, here it is. Here's the one. If your one thing becomes Jesus, he will absolutely create a great marriage. David says, this one thing I have sought, this one thing I desire and I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. When you make a decision, I am going to have God no matter what. And the truth is, most of us have to get desperate for that to happen. That is the foundation for your marriage. So the point is, 
You don't have to find the perfect spouse. The truth is you already have the perfect spouse, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus, he's our bridegroom. He's got to be our source. He's got to be our healing. He's got to be our identity. He's got to be our strength. He's got to be our wisdom. He's got to be every. He's got to be everything, so that we can serve our spouse and lay down our life for our spouse. So you don't have to find a perfect spouse. That person does not exist. Here's the second myth. The second myth is that my marriage has problems. Yes, go ahead. Jump in anytime. Did I skip something? Yeah. Yeah, you skipped me, Alan. I mean, you know, come on. I'm just kidding. Um, I was just going to say that just to kind of um, what he was saying. In, you know, you see marriages where, and we can do this, we can just live together and be like roommates, and you see a lot of marriages like that, and it's so sad. And I think God wants to use marriage to, like he's saying, to shape your character, to mold you into who he's called you to be. And I think with me, God has wanted to bring me to the end of myself. And so in that time, I watched, I, I would remember I would get up in the morning and I would go downstairs and Alan would be literally on the floor on his face just crying out to God. And so I just watched. He decided, like he said, I'm going to allow the Holy Spirit to change Tina. I'm going to worry about me, and I'm going to allow God to change her. And I just watched him change before my eyes. And so I looked at him, and I thought, I want God to do this in my heart and in my life. And during this time, and you know, ladies especially, it's, it's hard to get up here. I get nervous, and um, but I know God's called me to share my story. But like Alan said, if there is one thing I can share with you tonight, it is Jesus. Jesus is the answer for your marriage. He is the answer for everything. And in this moment, I learned I didn't know what else to do, but we had moved to Greensboro, and I had my first child, and that brought on its whole new um, we had already been married for five years. Thank God. I think if we would have started having children when it was so bad, I don't know what would have happened, but it had been five years and we were in Greensboro and I had Luke and I was having trouble being a mom too. And what I learned to do in that time changed my life. I literally got on my face. I remember I would go in the den and I would just get in a chair and I would open my Bible and I just cried out to God and said, God, if, if this is going to last, if you are going to, you know, save our marriage, you have got to change me. And I don't even think at that time I thought you've got to change me. I think in that moment I still thought he had all the problems. But I just cried out to God and said, God, you have got to do something. And in my desperation, God just began to do a work of grace in my heart. And, you know, one of the things that helped Tina in that moment was in those first five years when it was just me and Tina it was easy to blame me and I was taking responsibility so I was glad to admit I've got problems and I want to be a better husband so it was easy for Tina just to blame me well then we had Luke and I'm not at home and she feels like her life's falling apart it's hard to blame a little tiny baby for all your problems right and it just started helping her to realize wait a minute Maybe the problem's not just Alan, and I certainly can't blame my infant. 
Maybe there's some things that are unsettled in me. And God began doing this beautiful work in Tina's life. And, our, and that's really the turning point in our relationship. Now we're both running after Jesus and God is doing this great work in our relationship. I mean, we still had a lot, of, lot to learn in our relationship. But that's where we really turned the corner is when Tina decided, I've got to have Jesus for me. And I had decided, I've got to have Jesus for me. And when two people are on that path, your marriage starts going in a very, very good direction. So the first myth is, you got to find the one. The second myth is that my marriage has problems. And, and, and we've talked a lot about this in the first point. So I don't want to spend too much time, but I want, here's the thing you got to understand. Your marriage doesn't have problems. You have problems. Your marriage is a gift. You're the problem. You understand that? Your marriage is God's gift to you. You're the problem in your marriage. So the secret of your marriage turning around is not some magical thing from outside of you and your spouse to come. You know, it's, again, it's people come into pastor's office and they think I've got this bag of marriage dust. You know, I can pull it out here. Bam, I'm going to fix y'all. No, no, no. The problem is y'all. When Tina and I, when our marriage, those first five years, the problem was us. It wasn't marriage. It certainly wasn't God. The problem was me. So the secret to building a better marriage, I had to change. Tina had to change. See, when we get married, we don't understand how selfish we are. Especially if you wait a little later to get married, right? Because you've been living on your own, paying your bills, making all decisions, and all of a sudden you get married. And when you get married, you've got to share the remote, right? You get married and you've got to share the bathroom. You get married and you've got to share the refrigerator. You get married and you've got to share the checkbook. You get married and you've got to share your calendar. I mean, this person is a giant inconvenience to your great life. <laughs> Marriage exposes our selfishness. It just exposes it in a beautiful way. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, I don't think he just meant, well, Adam's bored. He can't talk to any of those animals. So I'll give him a woman. It wasn't good for Adam to be alone. Because when we're all alone, it, it's so easy to lead into gross selfishness and even idolatry, self-worship. It's all about me. And marriage just exposes and begins breaking. It teaches you, I'm living to serve somebody else. And that's, man, that's a great thing to learn. It's not about me. Read those numbers right there. Um, Again, this is from that same book, The Good News About Marriage. Can I say one thing yeah. real quick? I, just, I keep, I want to just explain to y'all real quick because I keep saying, I know Alan has shared some of his issues and I feel like I just keep saying I have issues. I just want to share real quick. I think for me, the biggest thing for me was um, my dad was grew up and was not shown a lot of love. And my dad just, he was a great man, loved the Lord. He just didn't really know how to 
show a lot of love. And I, through the years, picked, on, picked up on the lie that I was not enough. And so then every relationship through school, I think that's the lie that the enemy has continued to tell me, Tina, you're not enough. And so when we, I brought this into marriage and, you know, along with other issues, but I think when I said that I felt like Alan just wanted to change me, what I wanted from him is I just wanted him to accept me for who I was. And so God has just shown me that he, you know, wants to change me. So that was my biggest issue. Did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, since you mentioned that, my responsibility and your responsibility with your spouse is to love her unconditionally. What, one of the things that God really spoke to me about in that whole Ephesians 5.25 is husbands love your wife like Christ loves the church. I just began meditating on that and asking the Lord, how do you love me? So, for example... God loves me unconditionally. He loves me despite my mess. You know, there's a lot of people who their life is not perfect, which I guess is all of us, right? And we have a tendency to think that because our life isn't perfect, God's hiding from us. You know, in Genesis chapter 3, one of the most encouraging things is Adam and Eve sin. They're hiding. God is searching. Some of you need need to understand that alone is we think God's hiding and we're searching. No, you're hiding. God's searching. God's after us to redeem us, to rescue us, to set us free, to give us abundant life. Our tendency is to to hide. So the gospel, this this is such an important thing to understand too. What's true in your relationship with God should be true in your marriage. So if I understand I'm hiding, God's searching for me, if I understand the grace and the love of God, that's actually the thing that motivates me to serve and to honor and to please God, right? Romans 12, 2, Paul says it's in light of God's mercy. So for 11 chapters, Paul has just explained the grace and the glory of God in his redemptive story. For 11 chapters. And then he says, in light of what I've just said in the last 11 chapters, you should present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And he says, that is your reasonable service of worship. So the whole point is, because God's loved you so well, the only reasonable response is to say, God, here's my whole life. You can have it all. That same thing should be true in your marriage. So for some of you right now, you, it would be easy to make a list. You could, you could make a list of four, five, ten things maybe that you really wish you could fix about your spouse. The question is, how, what can you do to produce change in your spouse? There is something you can do. It's not... Remind them that they don't measure up, that they're failing. It's not showing them the list of things that you want in the ideal spouse. If I want Tina to change, just like God has done with me, the way for me to do that is to give my life loving her as well as I can, despite her imperfection, 
And when I do, you know what happens in her heart? She begins asking the question, if that man loves me so well, how can I love him back? In Galatians 5.22, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit. My kids ask me this all the time. Is a green bean a fruit or a vegetable? Fruit or a vegetable? Okay, y'all, maybe y'all are smarter than I am because that's not the answer I was thinking of. What my kids tell me is it's a fruit. Why? Because it has seed, and if you have seed, that's what makes it a fruit. So let's pretend that's true even if it's not. In Galatians 5.22, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Do you know what God does to produce that fruit in your life? He sows love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's how he treats you. That's what he sows into your life. And then what he sows into your life comes up. But when it comes up, because it's fruit, it contains the power to come up in the life of the person you decide to sow it into. You got that? So if I want my wife to love me, if I want my wife to be joyful, if I want my wife to be patient, need some of that, if I want my wife to have self-control, how do I get that? It's not by going, please, Tina, love me more. You don't go outside in your backyard and, and hoe a row and just beg the ground Produce some fruit. Produce some fruit. What you do is you plant seed. And whatever you sow, that is what you reap. So you can produce change in the life of your spouse, in the life of your children, in the life of your co-workers, in the life of your church members, in the life of your family. How do you do it? You sow into their life what you hope to reap from them. And you sow, and you sow, and you sow, and you sow, and what you sow is... In fact, some of you, now this is, this is hard, but some of you, the thing you get that you don't like is what you've been sowing for a lot of years in the heart of your spouse. Right? See, the gospel, the gospel proves what is true about God. Your marriage should prove what is true about God. Your marriage is a reflection of the gospel. So if I will love her this way, that's actually what produces change. It's not that I'm trying to get her to change. It's that now she feels so loved, she wants to be the best wife she can be. We're so loved, we want to be the best children for God we can be, right? That's what Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I say. So what did he do to love? To earn our love. John 15. Greater love has no man than this. That he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. God, Romans 5.8, demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why do we love God? We love him, 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us. See, anything good in you, any, anything good in you is either a work of your flesh 
a performance that is actually an independent rebellion against the grace of God in your life, or it's the fruit of the Spirit of God working and sowing in your life. It's one or the other. So if I'm going to produce change in my spouse, it's not by giving her a list of the things I want her to do. It's by loving her so well that she begins to say, how can I love you back? What communicates love to you? What encourages you? How can I support you? What what can I do as your wife to be a blessing to you? That's what happens when you lay down your life and you sow the fruit of the Spirit that He's producing in you into the heart of your spouse and in your children and everybody around you. And that's how the kingdom... But you know, in order for that to happen, you must die. You have to give up your rights. You have to give up your list. You have to give up your demands. You have to be willing to be that seed and to die believing if I will lay my pride and my ego. Most couples, when they come and talk to me, it's like they're in a ring in opposite corners ready to kill each other and it's the other guy's fault. And the truth is, if you want your marriage to turn around, you instead of fighting, you've just got to surrender. Just give up. Just, just totally surrender, give up, and trust God to produce in you what your spouse needs, and then sow it, sow it, sow it, sow it, and guess what? It comes back. And then you end up with the greatest thing in the world because you encounter God in that whole journey. You're transformed. Your spouse is transformed. You got this beautiful testimony. You'll never again wonder if God's real. You'll never again wonder. Paul said this. He said, the gospel is the power of God. and You'll never wonder if there's power in the gospel again when you see it transform your life and transform your family. But you've got to lay down your life. So your spouse is not perfect. And your marriage doesn't have problems. Really, the, the problem's me in my marriage. But Jesus is the solution. God can transform. So listen to these statistics. Because here's, here's what you can have. Again, from that same book. 75% of marriages make it. 80% of marriages are happy. Your spiritual growth gives you a 25 to 50% better chance to make it. And little changes along the way can make a big difference. Little changes along the way make a big difference. Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast. For more information about us, you can go to gracelife.me. That's gracelife.me. You can also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash gracelifeme and on Twitter at gracelifechurch.com.